I'm Will Beatty. And I'm Ben Picari. And we're two graduate students here at the University of Notre Dame's Medieval Institute. We're here to chat with students and scholars of the medieval world about what they do and how they came to do it. So who have we got today, Ben? Well, today we're sitting down with Dr. Megan Hall, Assistant Director of the Medieval Institute here at Notre Dame. We're here to talk to her today about her journey to and through academia, as well as her recent publication, Women's Education and Literacy in England from 1066 to 1540. Well, then let's go and meet her in the Middle Ages. All right. Megan, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Greatly appreciate it. Um, We get to know you a little bit as students here um, in the PhD program at Notre Dame, but we just want to introduce you and some of your recent work to a broader audience. Awesome. um, Which we're excited about. Uh, An opening question that we'd like to start with. Let's say you're at the grocery store. It's a long line. You're waiting person behind you starts up a casual chat and they say so what do you do how do you answer that question to a stranger (laughs) that's an excellent opening question um i think the answer is um i tend to say oh i'm an academic Mm -hmm. which nets me the blank stare okay and then i'll say which means that (laughs) I work in the academic world, I do research, I do academic administration, and I'm a history buff or mm. something like that. And that, I think I think people can identify more easily with those broader labels. Yes. You know? Right. Yes. History buff. That, that my, I, I can imagine, sparks something in people immediately. And they're like, oh, I've read a book. Yes. I've read seven <laughs> books on this one thing. And then you're off to the races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that is really, I found that to be a good connector with people because a lot of people love history. Oh, yes. Even if they have no idea what you would say, if you say, I'm a medievalist, mm. you know, but if I say, oh, I'm an, I'm an historian, mm-hmm. oh, that's so cool. And that is usually a really nice bridge into having a bigger discussion. Yeah. Do you find a lot of people that you talk to have a pretty clear, defiant sense of the, the medieval in their head before you have that conversation with them? You know, it kind of depends. That's an interesting question. I feel like now my area specialty, of course, is medieval English history, British history. So my my sample size might be a little bit narrow. Uh, But I feel like most Brits I encounter have a stronger sense of the Middle Ages because they live among the remains of the Middle Ages every day. Whereas most Americans I meet who are not super interested in older history they might know a lot about the American Revolution, colonial era, uh, that sort of thing, but they, they know a lot less about the Middle Ages. They would have a hard time explaining what that would be. Um, but once I get into it and I say, oh, well, I usually just give the date range. I say, oh, it's about 550 to 1500 AD. And they'll usually say, well, what about the Roman Empire? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, well, this is right after the fall of the Roman Empire. So the broad strokes of history, they can start to kind of join me in understanding what the Middle Ages is. But then if I start talking about, oh, manuscripts or churches or the, I think a lot of the visual cues resonate with people. Uh, And that's actually how I began my interest in the Middle Ages was those visual resonances. So um, I think that's for me, a pretty natural way to start connecting with people. It's like hit the, hit the high notes with them and then see like, are they, is this clicking? Is this tracking? Are they interested? Do they want to know more? And if they do, I'll go as deep as they want to go. But if not, I'll be like, well, it's nice to talk to you. <laughs> what were some of those early um, 
residences for you that got you interested in the medieval period or just medieval things? Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to pin specifically one thing, but I will say my mom deserves a lot of the credit for introducing a love of history into my life. She was always a huge fan of history. Elizabethan England is her top favorite time period. So she was always reading novels and talking about, you know, the that that part of the monarchy and I just, I loved her passion. That was really interesting to me. And I, I thought, oh, this is really cool. Old stuff, mm-hmm. things in the past. Wow. And so I, I found myself drawn to those things through her stories. And one of my earliest uh, connections with the Middle Ages, I didn't really know it at the time, was through the movie Sleeping Beauty, uh. which I loved as a kid. And I didn't know why I loved it so much. It just really, the all of the visual cues of the animation, everything just really... I thought, wow, this is beautiful. It wasn't until probably 10 years, 15 years later, I was watching a documentary on Sleeping Beauty and learned that the animators, the artists, all went to uh, medieval objects for their visual inspiration. That's really great. So they they were looking at medieval art and architecture to draw all the backgrounds, all the characters' costumes. So it was actually set in the Middle Ages, even though obviously it's a very vague fairy tale time period. And so I was kind of stunned <laughs> to learn That's that. Fun. And I thought, I that makes that. a lot yeah. of sense now. So, yes. So I think um, always had a love of history and then mm-hmm. really gelled for me in my undergrad. And you also, when you were younger, you sort of traveled to places like Switzerland and to the mm-hmm. UK. Did you find that that kind of encountering with the medieval firsthand in that way was also quite informative? Absolutely. Although I think at that time I was not super well informed about the Middle Ages. And so kind of like with Sleeping Beauty, what I saw was amazing, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really know how to understand it. I didn't know what I was looking at. Like, for example, my high school prom ended up being in a medieval guild hall because I was in school in Switzerland. And at the time, I just thought this is a really cool old building. The end. (laughs) And, And I thought medieval guild hall. What is that? That sounds amazing. But I just didn't really have a framework to understand it. And we, although I took uh, an art historical or an art history class, um, we didn't really, it was, it was very broad. It was introduction to art history. So it was everything from Roman, classical to modern. So it was very a huge, fast. yes, one semester, very fast tour. So, you know, now when I go back and visit people back in Zurich and back in Switzerland, and I, I have a new appreciation for roaming around the old city and be able to look at the, you know, the Roman excavations and the medieval buildings. And it's just, it's so much richer now. My understanding of it is so much richer. But absolutely, I think being in those environments, it really cultivates uh, an awareness of what it's like to live with the past. Right. In the present. Yeah, absolutely. Did you um, choose to go immediately from undergrad to like, I want to do more study. This is the direction of my study. Or was that a bit of a process as well of discerning, oh, um, maybe I'm going to work here or do this and then come back to the academy? Mm-hmm. How was that journey? Was it more straightforward or more roundabout for you? Um, it's been a little more roundabout, I would say. I actually went right from undergrad into my master's degree because I was very certain at the time that I wanted to be an English teacher. And I thought, oh, I really like teaching at the college level. I'll do this. I, you know, with a master's degree, I can teach at a community college, tech school, at, at any university, you know, the first couple of years worth of English Lang and Lit classes. And I, I really loved that. But it was in my master's degree that I was even more exposed to medieval literature. And so I really started down that path of specialization. And 
when I finished the master's degree, I wasn't sure that I was ready to commit to a PhD program. So I actually ended up in a moment where I was, I kind of had a foot in both worlds. I did adjuncting as a full-time job for about two years, which was so difficult. I loved being able to be in the classroom. I loved being able to do the teaching. But as anybody who's been in that position knows, adjuncting is a paycheck to paycheck kind of existence. You know, it's just, there's no longevity, there's no benefits. It's just a very difficult lifestyle to sustain in the long term. So as much as I loved the profession, I thought, I need something more stable. So then I ended up uh, actually working at a law firm for three years. How do you bridge that gap and relate the Middle Ages or find a way to relate the Middle Ages to kind of work which which other people are doing? Because I think that it, it can be difficult sometimes for people to understand uh, or see the benefit in kind of doing the sort of work we do in medieval studies. It's a great question. And I mean, there's so many possible answers to that. I. I can certainly speak about where I've ended up going with it. And I think for me, um, with my specific topic in in women's literacy, Mm -hmm. I have been for the past, gosh, I would say really past eight, nine years now, I've been really focusing on ways to to bridge. um, And especially, I think, given that this is Women's History Month, it's a really Mm -hmm. appropriate time to think about women's history, generally speaking, and that is one of the places I've seen my contribution make a difference. Um, an example that, that always comes to my mind was such a wonderful encounter I had. I had a Mellon dissertation fellowship, and I was at the University of London for a year. And as part of that, I got funding here from the Nanavik as a grad oh, student nice. to do like a, a big research trip. I drove all around the UK. It was amazing. It was terrifying to drive on the left side of the road, <laughs> but it was, it was an adventure. And I remember I was in Cornwall, and I was at this little you know, 13th century church that was a site I needed to go visit for my research. And I came upon a bell ringing club and they invited me to come ring bells with them. And so I was like, this is amazing. So (laughs) I had such a tremendous experience being taught how to ring a medieval bell with this group. And I got to talk to them too. And they asked me, you know, why are you in Cornwall? What are you doing here? And so I got to give them the brief rundown. And one of the older women in the group as I was describing, like, oh, I research the history of women's literacy and learning, mm-hmm. and I specifically focus on 12th and 13th centuries in England, and I look at manuscript evidence, and I, I look at uh, textual evidence, and I said, you know, it's such a fascinating topic, and she was like, could could women read? And I said, absolutely, and she's like, I knew we could. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a wonderful a moment that really touched my heart and made me think, okay, what I'm doing has absolute connection mm-hmm. to the present day yes. because I'm helping, hopefully helping to write women's history and recover things that have been overlooked, ignored, brushed aside. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of that has been governed by this general assumption, mm-hmm. um, this bias that just sort of says, well, women couldn't read because they were women, so it's no point in looking for evidence of that. And that is a scientific it's a scholarly right mm-hmm. i mean none of none of that is anything that i think most of us today would ever think to do just to grab a whole chunk of an idea and set it aside because mm-hmm. it can't possibly be true so there's so many scholars now who have taken this challenge and are really working to to uncover like review existing evidence come up with new evidence to show this and i 
I love those moments when, you know, women today can feel stronger and more empowered because they're like, oh, this history I've received over many generations is not true. And there's something so powerful about seeing someone in front of you be able to rewrite their own narrative and be like, oh, I'm not I'm not held back by this anymore. This this mistaken belief. So, I mean, it's such an honor to be a part of a process like that. And I feel so blessed that I'm you know, I'm working on this topic at this moment and can actually find a way to help people in their their current life situations. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing. And that nicely brings us um, to your article, uh, again, titled Women's Education and Literacy in England, 1066 to 1540. Um, and I, I have many questions, but I, I, we really want to kind of break down the process of how a piece like this gets made. Mm-hmm. So you have these ideas, you've read some things. What was kind of the spark that began this particular article? Well, thank you. I would be glad to talk about it. I, this article was really interesting because I was actually invited to contribute this oh, to a special edition of History of Education Quarterly. And they approached me. Um, I think they found my one of my Kalamazoo conference presentations uh, in you know in the program and and there are not that many people who are specifically titling their projects like women's literacy. Mm-hmm. So I think having that title was a very helpful directional sign of you know what I'm doing, what I'm working on. So um, they they reached out to me and and I was um, I asked them some more questions and discovered that of the and I'm not going to be able to recall. Excuse me. Um, particularly off the top of my head, how many articles there ended up being in the special edition, I want to say like six to eight. Okay. Only two of them were medieval, and all the rest were Renaissance. And yeah. I think that that spoke to me very strongly about how the medieval period is just sort of seen as this vague thing that yeah. comes before the Renaissance when, and this is something I learned especially working on this article, was I got to really learn about where education studies are. And it's so different from medieval studies. So education mm-hmm. studies, as I discovered, tends to be very like, oh, the classical era gave us our classical authors. Then we leap forward. Then we leap to the Renaissance. <laughs> the Renaissance where people rediscovered classical authors. And then, oh, you have Latin-heavy education. And then you have, you know, boys finishing schools and girls finishing schools. And then it's, you know, so it's very much about educational theory. And that's right. how they kind of connect to present-day educational theory and practice, this is recovering their history. And it's a very different kind of pursuit than medieval studies. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, there's so much I could say about this, but I, I guess to get, to get back to your original question about how I got started, that really, that audience awareness informed everything about the article. So I was taking um, the, the paper they saw in the Kalamazoo Congress program, was taken from my dissertation. It was a chapter on women's education that has now grown into this massive, like hopefully a book project at yes. some point, because we need to have a history of women's literacy mm-hmm. and women's education written, which there has not been one yet written. Um, and so I, I started with audience and I wanted to figure out, you know, how do I talk to such a broad audience about this topic? And so it ended up being a big span, you know, about five, well, three, 400, 500 years mm-hmm. of time. And I needed to be able to digest specialist topics and, uh, and terminology and concepts and evidence yes. and then present that in a fairly broad way to a big audience. So 
I really sat down and one of my favorite techniques is I get a giant sheet of paper and a pack of markers and I map out because I'm a very visual person. So I map out what I want the content to look like. So oh, wonderful. It's it's so helpful. It's such a great technique. And it feels very kindergarten, right? Like you're kind of scrawling yeah. with markers and doesn't have to be neat and organized. And so th- I that took me about a week, I think, to really, and I was already familiar with the topic, so like a week to figure out how to digest this and present it to the audience. So, And then from there, you know, I really had to sift through uh, the evidence that I had and figure out which examples are the most powerful, mm-hmm. what's going to make the most sense to a broad readership. And then, very interestingly, it was the editorial process that ended up being the most challenging because it, as I discovered, they handed off the pieces to an editor who was not familiar with manuscript citation conventions mm-hmm. and citing medieval evidence. And that was a whole other thing. So. We had to have a you know, sort of a post-editorial conversation. All these comments kept coming back to me like, what's the full citation for this manuscript? Well, I've given you the full citation yeah. for the manuscript. This is how we do it. So that actually ended up being a really interesting longer conversation with the managing editor of the journal and the editor of the material. And we got it all sorted out. But all of that process just hit me once again like, wow, this is – such important work and it's tricky work to move outside of the like the bubble of medieval studies where we all know what we're talking about we know the conventions we know how to present the material to our peers but to then communicate that outside the bubble that was challenging i felt like i learned a lot though it was really valuable experience yeah even just stepping from one academic subfield to a different one Mm -hmm. right the language change yes so 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 drastically Mm -hmm. absolutely when, when you talk about evidence, um, what what were the main places, you know, physically or online, that where you had been slowly, I'm assuming you came to this w- with a certain amount of evidence you already had and maybe found some more along the way. So, yeah, just tell us more about when you're, you know, kind of doing history, the work <laughs> of history. What were kind of the main evidence pieces that you incorporated in this article? Yeah, absolutely. So I... When I began this project, it was my dissertation, so mm-hmm. focusing specifically on the Ankara and Wissa text. And for anyone who's listening and doesn't know much about this text, it was written in the early 13th century in the West Midlands of England, like right along the border with Wales. And it was written mostly in English, in Middle English. Okay. There are other languages mixed in. There's lots of Latin quotations. There's also England was a very multilingual nation, if, if nation's even the right word at that point. Um, and so there's lots of linguistic influences in this in this book. But what's most interesting to me is that it was written for women. And it wasn't just written in English. There's lots mm. of Latin that's untranslated. There's a lot of visual cues in the manuscripts. For example, things are not underlined. They're not written in red. It's all presented as one black ink writing. So it's just line after line of black ink. And for anyone who's not familiar with how manuscripts are presented, that's a sign of someone who's reading the text as a scholar, mm-hmm. reading the text for information as opposed to, you know, often you'll see decorated initials that start you know, sort of chapters or start sections, or you'll see index words, you'll see red underlinings for the start of passages, you'll, you'll see um, different languages written in different scripts. And that can be a visual cue to the reader like, oh, this is a script meant for someone else to read, like right. like, a, like a, a, a parish priest who's counseling you, for example. Right. So in this book, it's all presented visually in a very uniform way. And the book is small, it's well-worn, it's not made out of particularly valuable material. So 
that's the kind of evidence I draw on is I look at the object itself. How was it created? What kinds of materials were used? How was the text put in it? And then I try to figure out how would readers have used this text. And so because this is a text written for women, uh, because women would have used it in an anchor hold, which for anchoresses, they would typically at this in this time period, this 12th, 13th century era, they typically would have come mainly from the aristocracy, but also from other classes. We have evidence of that. And they would have lived in these anchor holds, which are one or two room cells, often built on the sides of churches or castles or in churchyards. And so it would have been a very solitary life. And one of the instructions in this text, which is a guidebook for how to live this anchoritic life, um, one of the instructions is to do reading and to do writing and to do all sorts of intellectual practices that I think many people don't imagine women participating in Mm. in the 13th century. And so that's that's a main source of evidence and one of the really original sets of work that I and analyses that I do, and that I, I join that together with a lot of other tremendous work scholars have done to find other examples in other texts and manuscripts and objects. And so that evidence helps to put my evidence into context mm-hmm. since I, I spent about a year um, noting all the marginal annotations and okay. all the ways that the, the, the book was put together and the materials that were used. So all of that was brand new work, and it was such a tremendous privilege to be able to get that fellowship and do that work. I was going to ask there, you said this this text is, or this book is small, mm-hmm. not particularly expensively made. And I was going to ask then, does that suggest it's portable, that it's something they're traveling around with? But then you say that this is actually for an anchoress, so they're not traveling far at all. In fact, no further than the two rooms of their, their little <laughs> cell, basically. So what what can the fact that it's so small and kind of uh, crudely made, if we can use that term, what does that tell us then, yeah, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I will offer clarification. I wouldn't say it's crudely made. I would just say it's more, I call it a working book. Mm. That's the terminology I use because that's, it, that's fun. It, yeah, yeah that's, right. That's I, I I thought so. I thought it really captured that spirit of like this this book is for utilitarian purposes. It's for reading. It's for yeah. reading. <laughs> exactly. But that's a really great question you're asking about. What what does the size tell us about the function of the book? And so um, also one one misconception that um, that I had about anchoresses and a lot of a lot of people do as well is that they they never left their cells. They're in theory, they never left their cells, but they actually could get permission to leave. They could go on pilgrimage. Uh, some had gardens that they tended. So there was actually a surprising amount Yard of mobility. Yeah. <laughs> a surprising amount of mobility in these women's lives. And and the fact that there are, there's so much in this, this Anchor Nawissa book, this guidebook, um, recommending conduct for women when they're at their windows. Mm-hmm. So how anchoresses interact with people who come to their windows it's very clear that there's this ideal prescribed way of living and then there's the reality. And yes, so the author yeah. helps to try to bridge that gap with with the the real life of an anchoress. You've got people coming to your window for advice, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I tend to think that with the smallness of this book, A, it's a lot easier to get animal skin that size. So you can use a lot of, you know, there, there's it's much more readily available than, say, making a giant luxury book where one cow gives you one leaf that then you fold in half and that's what four pages of text so it's it's easier to procure materials the materials are less expensive and it's also small enough that it could be passed in and out of a window and there's evidence in the text that i talk about where it seems very much that these anchoresses participated in a reading community 
and that they might have been writing out and copying these texts for themselves. So whoever their their maidservant or a priest or confessor, a spiritual advisor, could have helped to circulate these materials, like the actual, the individual gatherings maybe that could have been copied a section at a time and passed through the window and then passed back out again. So portability is actually, I think, uh, the right word to use for this, but maybe not portable in the sense of we think of like a friar going out Mm -hmm. to preach in the community and carrying a small Bible with him or carrying a guidance text with him, but portable for a different reason so that there could be this circulation among this reader community. I mean, this is a great example of how looking at these texts and the physical nature of them as objects can really actually open a window into the kind of life of the period in some really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So the other uh, maybe starting question was w- the, the time frame. Were you prescribed that from the journal or did you get to kind of map out like, I don't know if I'm comfortable going to the ninth, eighth centuries. Let's keep it a little bit with a little bit more sources. And then w- did you decide 1540 is a natural ending with the like, coinciding kind of of the dissolution of monasteries or was that kind of like a prescribed okay the next person's picking up in 1540 Megan so you got to get us that far. (laughs) It's a great question um no I had a lot of independence on this one and uh, I think it was helpful that the medieval period was maybe um an era that the the editors and the contributors didn't necessarily go into a lot so they really wanted to Um, I'm glad they wanted to really rely on specialists Mm. to help bring them the information that, you know, could be helpfully included in this special edition um, on like the history of the history of education or historical education or however you want to put it. So, no, I basically, uh, as I was talking with the editors, you know, they they approached and said, hey, we've got we want we're getting two contributors. Can you can you do something for us along the lines of this topic that you wrote on for Kalamazoo? I said, absolutely. And I said, how about if I, you know this is what I specialize in. So let me focus on this second half of the Middle Ages, basically. And so they said that was wonderful. And I, you're exactly right that I picked basically post-conquest to the dissolution of the monasteries to talk about this because those are such impactful events in mm. British history. The dissolution, of course, being when Henry VIII went around and basically closed down all the monasteries. And mm-hmm. We lost, sadly, lost a lot of uh, yes. manuscripts during that, and a lot of them went into private hands. And Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, be, you know, because the church had been such a bastion of education for so long, um, you know, it really shook up the the educational uh, systems. And, and at that point, it sort of, I think, kind of propelled them into um, the track that we now know was sort of the more modern angle of, of schoolhouses and, and you mm-hmm. know, formalized curricula which is very much obviously where we are today. Uh, but, you know, that had its roots in uh, late medieval and uh, early modern. Uh, well, really Europe overall, but since my area is England, for sure in England. <laughs> yeah. With um, this this project in mind, you talked about women's education occurring at home um, with a tutor sometimes um, and nunneries in the various places. And then also to further complicate it among various social classes. So it's kind of this like geographical as well as like social setting. Um, And kind of as you're examining all these different imaginary people, right? These archetypes of, okay, a working person learning at home. um, Was there any group that you learned the most about or were most interested in or 
uh, were surprised by as you were researching all these different people in different places learning? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, that was one of the coolest parts of this particular article is that I really got to look at all the social strata and all the situations in which education could occur. And I think it, it might be helpful to clarify here as well that, as I mentioned a minute ago, education in the Middle Ages didn't really mean a formal curriculum. Oh, yes. At, at the university, yes. Um, and, and, and within church structures, if people were headed to a clerical profession, yes, that had already gelled quite nicely. But for, for most people, anyone who wasn't university-bound, who wasn't training to be a cleric, education was much broader. And so for the aristocratic classes, it was how to be a, you know, a lady, a gentleman, how, you know, all of the social training as well as literacy training, uh, decorum, manners, um, you know, riding, archery, all of, all of the pursuits you'd be expected to carry in your carry out in your adulthood, you're getting the formation for that as a child. If you are part of the rising working class, then you might need to keep business records. You might need to um, be able to, you know, uh, like accounting or bookkeeping, um, that you know that sort of thing. But and then when you're in working in the field, like literacy doesn't really have much of a place for you. So, and that's that's a broad generalization, but I think you know, in, in the Middle Ages, still fairly true. So education is broad. Um, and it really, yeah, depended on, you know, which which socioeconomic situation you were in. So because of all of that, we have the most records for the aristocracy. We have more records for aristocratic girls and women. So I was really excited to be able to expand. And that's actually the audience that the Anchor and Whistle was written for mm-hmm. uh, initially was this aristocratic class. So um, there's more evidence for that. And I've spent a lot of time with that body of material, but I was really interested to get more into social history and learn more about the the rising middle class and the groups below them. So I think probably one of the most fascinating areas I ended up learning more about was the many different kinds of professions that women could undertake in the working classes and all the different kinds of apprenticeships that girls could undertake and and different laws about education, and so to see these these sorts of things coalescing, um, you know, in the in the 14th century, if I'm if I'm recalling the century correctly, there's a a law that makes its way onto the books, basically that that protects the right of um, of you know, I'm not even sure the best term to use for this. People would say you know peasants in in past, uh, maybe I would just say the the agrarian class, mm-hmm. sort of working class. Um, peasant is not a helpful term anymore. That that group of people, this protected their right to seek an education, hmm. um, and that was a fascinating development for me. And I'm you know it gets me wondering what kinds of education they end up getting. You know, <laughs> could could they be spared from the field? Were parents wanting a better life life for their children? Did education represent this for them right. in the way that it does today? Mm-hmm. And so um, you know all of this is tied into the changing social structures of England following the plague and. Um, you know, working conditions that were rapidly changing with the shortage of workers. And so it's it's such a fascinating angle of social history that I really got to get into in researching this. Fantastic. Another kind of crucial part of the research we do can tend to be in libraries and archives and places like this. Did you have any particular experience using those kind of resources for this this research? What were they like? Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of this work is to get into the archives. And to me, it it goes back to that childhood love of all things medieval and historical and the sort of the romantic part mm. of being a medievalist, right? 
um, it was such a tremendous experience to be able to connect with vicars and you know different parish priests and and just all, all sorts of folks out there Salisbury Cathedral and be able to say hey I need to get into your archive to look at this manuscript is that okay can we set the t- set this time up everyone was so welcoming and I got to oh, have just tremendous experiences like being led into the secret parts of Salisbury Cathedral and being led up these medieval stone staircases into the the manuscript library up there that you know most people don't ever get to see this stuff so it was such a kind of a childhood dream come true to be able to be climbing these you know stone staircases and sitting down in this medieval library and I was the only one there and mm-hmm. I was appointed a local volunteer as my chaperone and she was so kind and it was freezing cold you know the stone is 16 inches thick and the sunlight never penetrates it so the atmospheric experience alone was tremendous but you know really being able to sit down with these 800,000 year old manuscripts yeah and to know that you're one of the few people out there who can who can work with this object yeah. and that you've been so privileged to get you know have the mentorship and the training and the education and the support to get to that point and then to be able to make some sense out of it you know it's both personally fulfilling and professionally fulfilling which is fantastic so and, you know, there's so many of these places that are the the smaller collections, the smaller libraries. And then you've got something like the British Library, which is massive. Mm. And their staff is tremendously helpful. And they have these amazing reading rooms. So I got to spend a whole year there during my fellowship uh, going just about every day and sitting down with the, the Anchor to Wissa Nero manuscript, which is the earliest surviving textual version. And just sitting there every day, paging through it, it started to feel like an old friend, <laughs> which so there's that emotional experience too. So I feel like archival work, you know, you have to have all sorts of training to do it. And then when you get there, it feels so special. At least that's how it feels to me. And to be able to, you know, be one of the few people in the world who can work on this and then to see other colleagues there who are part of that group right. too. And you're like, yeah. hey, everybody, can we talk about this? And having tea, you know, on break times and just talking about manuscripts. Um, I think archival work is such a special way to carry out professional work. You say that, uh, and I completely agree, that you're sort of in a, pri- in a privileged position. We have these skills to be able to look at these manuscripts, but there might be people out there who just are wondering, well, isn't it just looking at a text? I mean, what kind of skills can you surely need? So <laughs> what skills are you talking about? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, well, sort of an aside, the fact that so many manuscripts are being digitized, I think, means that anybody who's curious can look, can look and can mm-hmm, and can get something out of it for sure. But um, as most people have or will discover when they look at this page, how do you know what's written on it? You know, um, and so the the different kinds of scripts, the different languages, and then as I as I have um, talked about already, the the different kinds of ways that those texts are presented, different colors, different scripts. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of different kinds of, um, we, we, we call it hands if it's the individual scribe. They're, they're sort of handwriting, but then the script is sort of like the font that, they, that they're using. So, um, you know, we have different scripts and you have to know what purpose those scripts are serving and you have to know how a book is put together. And mm-hmm. there's so much that's not obvious from looking at a yes. book. In fact, I recently did a workshop at a local high school here, and we we made a little booklet. And it's something I've done before, and I have so much fun doing it. It was how I really, when I was working on book arts you know, 20, 25 years ago, one of the ways I got into manuscript studies and, try, and understood it was by making my own book and knowing how it's put together. 
that information, it might seem kind of trivial, but it actually there's a ton of information that we can get for how these different groups of pages were sewn together down the middle, why the binder made that choice, why the artist or the scribe made the choice. There's so many different people who would have been involved in producing a book. And what we see in front of us is not usually how it was originally constructed. And so to have that specialist knowledge to interpret and even to know what to look for, things like the size of the pages, the quality of the animal skin, any repairs that were made, how to date those repairs, what kind of thread was used, what kind of binding material was used, whether it was left loose or sewn together, whether a cover was added, was this produced in a well-known workshop, who did the the illuminations. There's so many things that uh, anyone can learn these if they want to. Uh, they're they're not walled off, and if you if you're interested in this, there are plenty of intro books that you'll just you'll really enjoy reading, and then you can go and look at digitized manuscripts and really get this experience for yourself pretty quickly. But the more you can learn and the more you can be trained by people who know as well, which I was uh, you know been so privileged to be able to train with some of the great you know codicologists, the people who study the history of the book, and paleographers, these people who study ancient handwriting. It you know, the more you learn, the more you realize you need to yes. know, <laughs> and so it's it's both fun and a challenge. And, and so much of what you mentioned was seeing things that were not there, right? Seeing what colors were not used, seeing how plain, in, in many ways, you know, and that that would not jump out to me as it telling you a lot. But with 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 that training, then you can immediately see oh. They didn't use all these things, which must mean that it was used for this, mm-hmm. right? And so seeing things that aren't there mm-hmm. with that specialist knowledge, I, I feel like is a very helpful skill, right? To just start the ball rolling for them, like imagining, okay, what's the world in which this object existed mm-hmm. and uh, was used in? Um, thank you so much, Megan, for sharing all that. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Dr. Hall, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, how can our listeners find out more about you or your work? So um, there are a couple of ways to reach me. Um, you can get me on Twitter. I'm at Megan J. Hall, PhD. Um, I have a website called Anchor Hold On Demand, uh, which is just a WordPress website, so it should probably be anchorholdondemand.wordpress.com. Um, I am currently working on building more of my um, academic web presence, but I can also just be reached on the Medieval Institute website. So if you just go to medieval.nd.edu, and then you can navigate to our people section and you'll find me there and my contact info is there. And I am always happy for people to reach out. I want to be included in people's mentor networks if you would like (laughs) to get more information or talk to me. Um, I have been helped by so many people along Mm. the way, and I would love to give back um, and especially given my areas of research, women who are interested in, and girls, young women who are really interested in learning more about how to further their own professions, um, I am just so happy to help. So, Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Hall, for coming with us today. And uh, thank you all for listening in. And we hope you'll meet with us next time in the Middle Ages. Meeting in the Middle Ages is sponsored by the Medieval Institute of the University of Notre Dame with a generous grant from the Medieval Academy of America. 
If you have any questions for a medievalist, send them to us at meetinginthema at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at meetinginthema and Instagram at meetinginthemiddleages. For more information on some of the topics raised in this episode, head on over to the episode description. Thanks for listening.